the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This podcast is brought to you by Anbro Capital Investments. Invest in the future, invest in growth. Visit investingunicorns.com to learn more. The Unicorn portfolio is managed by Anbro Capital Investments, an authorized financial services provider. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to episode 107 of Magic Markets. It is now 2023. This is our first free show of the year. We've already got one premium show under our belts, which was a lot of fun. We recapped Nike. And uh, this week we're doing fact set in premium, so nice global stocks. And uh, our guest today is certainly, you know, very familiar with all of these global stocks because that's where he spends all his time. But before we welcome Craig, uh, Mo, I first want to say hello to you and welcome all the way from Canada, as always. Yeah, thanks, Ghost. Always a pleasure doing this with you. And a happy new year to to you, to all of our listeners. Uh, It's 2023 and I think markets have kicked off with a bang. So it's really a nice time to get Craig on the show, uh, let's run through, you know, we can have a, a quick kind of retrospective. Hey, what was 2022? You know, it's the kind of year that we want to leave in the rearview mirror. Uh, and I'd like to maybe start off there, but definitely take this discussion on a more forward looking kind of view of what 2023 holds. So as I say, always a pleasure doing this with you, Ghost. And to Craig and the Enbro team, you know, welcome to 2023 and welcome to Magic Markets. Thanks, guys. Well, you know, happy to be here again and, and happy new year to you and to all the listeners out there. Yes, 2022 was a, a pretty, pretty manic year, wasn't it? For, for many different reasons. And I think for a lot of people out there and a lot of people I've certainly spoken to, they were pretty happy to get it behind them. And I must say, I'm probably one of those as well. Yeah, I can believe it. 2022 is not going to go down as your favorite ever year, Craig. <laughs> I don't think for anyone who investing anything remotely growth themed at all or even growth tilted it's a year that you're not gonna not gonna look back on with kindness no certainly i think you know for anyone that i think invested in offshore markets as a whole it wasn't a great year and you know particularly for those you know those sort of people that tend to focus on the growth sphere or the growth factor as they like to call it in those markets it was a a particularly horrible year I think by the end of it, the S&P 500 had lost you know, almost 20% for the year, which was its biggest annual percentage drop since 2008. You know, so to put that into context, it's been a, a pretty good number of years, you know, over a decade since we've seen the markets perform that poorly. And especially so, as you mentioned, Ghost, you know, in the, in the growth space. I mean, NASDAQ was down 33% by the end of the year last year. It was a, a pretty horrific year for anything growth orientated. Yeah, and I mean, Craig, 
this is not your first kind of rodeo. You know, you and I worked together, I think, during the last financial crisis. So, you know, to, to kind of go through that again, this was a very different kind of year because it wasn't a crisis year. You know, the crisis year was the pandemic. And actually in that year, equities were flying. In this year, though, there was something very important that I think was, was driving the macro narrative. And, and maybe that's where we start off is that we've had these very sharp rate hikes come through in the US and then obviously globally as well. And that's actually been unprecedented going all the way back to the late 1970s, uh, the, the oil crisis shock and then the Volcker years that came through. And I think that move in terms of the risk-free rate is something that we saw come through very sharply in terms of affecting risk appetite, but then more so in terms of stocks where the valuations were quite extended, let's call it growth stocks, but I mean heavily in the tech sector and a number of other sectors, because of those extended valuations, when you move the risk-free rate, basically on any kind of discounted cash flow or any valuation model, those kind of stocks get hit particularly hard. So where are we right now, Craig? I mean, we've had the Fed already softening its tone. We, we, you know, we've got the potential for a much slower rate hike cycle, if not a, a reversal, you know, this big theme around a Fed pivot. Uh, what's your view currently at Anbro in terms of where we are in that cycle and how does that play into your outlook for the year ahead? You know, when the year started last year, Everyone, well, when I say everyone, I suppose the Fed and, you know, and I was in that camp as well, you know, thought that inflation would be transitionary, you know, so we were coming out of this, you know, this pandemic, you had, you know, demand, which was suddenly starting to, to increase as people were sort of leaving their homes after lockdown. And, you know, the Fed was saying, well, you know, we're going to get this sort of big sort of push in inflation, and then it's going to subside. And I think straight away, I think, you know, they realized that, well, maybe not straight away, but it soon became apparent that that was not going to happen. And I think that was exacerbated in particular by, you know, the start of the war between Russia and Ukraine. And I think as 2022 unfolded, it then became very clear that inflation was going to be the major pain point. And you had massive demand that came out of, you know, work from home initially. You know, you had idle factories, supply chain issues, Chinese lockdowns, this war, this free money that governments the world over had handed out in order to try and prevent a total global collapse. And all these things kind of came at the same time as 2022 started. And companies were scrambling to find stock, you know, whether it could be stock of anything, you know, from microchips to oil to grain, even employees, you name it, there was a scarcity in pretty much everything. And when we look back at that, I think we can say, you know, it was like a mind-blowing convergence of so many different shortages all at exactly the same time, driven by several issues that I think all happened simultaneously. And the result really was just this tsunami of demand into an acute shortage of everything. And, you know, the, the Fed soon realized this. And I think, you know, central banks around the, the world kind of realized this. And it's something we allude to in our note, which will be coming out in the next few days. So, you know, I urge guys to please, you know, have a read. They soon became apparent that there was only one way to solve this, and this was to raise rates and to raise rates rapidly. So, you know, they were initially behind the curve and they felt they needed to really get ahead of the curve. And that's where they just put the pedal on the gas, so to speak, and rate hikes started coming through thick and fast. And, you know, if we came toward the end of the year and you look at it sort of in a global context, this happened pretty much across the world. And, you know, the, the rate of, of hikes and say that the pace of hikes did vary from one country to another. But in the state of in the case of the U.S. in particular, you know, the pace and rate of hikes or, or the quantum of rate hikes has been the fastest they've ever had. 
And I think that just shows you how, you know, how serious, I guess, the Fed is on controlling inflation and also what a big impact that ultimately had on markets and on particular on companies that were, you know, perhaps more exposed to interest rates or higher interest rates than others. Now, in the growth space, which is, you know, one of the flagship portfolios we have on the JSC now, the unicorn, as, you know, we've spoken about many times before, those sort of growth stocks are seen as long duration assets because, you know, your your profits tend to come many years in the future and initially companies are you know investing heavily for for growth and they were pretty much at the forefront of the pain trade last year you know if one looks at how this massive resetting took place with regards to you know a new sort of dynamic for interest rates or, or a dynamic that we hadn't seen in quite some time yeah craig maybe if i can jump in there to give people a decent analogy on what happened in the markets last year it's like you know driving home you hit a pothole, you get home, it's now stage six load shedding, you thought it was stage four, and the only thing you can find on your phone to watch is reruns of the Proteas batting in Australia. That's basically what the market was for you last year. And it couldn't have been worse. It, it basically, nothing could have gone worse for, you know, growth stocks. It was just this perfect storm. I actually wrote a column this week for FM around how, you know, you can either run away from the markets from the stuff or you can learn from them. Mm-hmm. And I actually think in some ways it was a privilege to live through this. I'm not sure you'd share that sentiment necessarily given, you know, just how deep in it you've been. But in some ways it's a privilege to have seen how inflation really works and what it does at an extreme and how, you know, rates can cause so much pain in valuation. Like it's not, it's not easy to see the stuff normally because it happens far more gradually. Whereas in the last year, what we've actually had is this perfect example of extreme stuff. And that's how you learn, not you specifically, I'm just saying anyone listening to this podcast, you know, that's how we learn about what these things do and how we prepare ourselves for the future, I suppose, because hopefully the worst is now behind you. Well, that's what we'd like to think, right? I think, you know, at the end of the day, you're 100% right, you know, Ghost. As Mo mentioned earlier, I mean, we worked together, you know, for our sins during the great financial crisis. And, you know, we learned a lot from that experience. And, you know, we then all as, as listeners and as investors, you know, lived through a pandemic now, which is something very few people, I think, prior to our generation could have said that, you know, that they had done. And now, you know, we're going through another very interesting time where you've had a a massive inflationary spike. And, you know, as a result of that, a a massive sort of increase in interest rates from from a global context. Now, you know, before we move on a little bit about, you know, where we think the future is going, I mean, just to put this into context, you know, the U.S. raised rates seven times last year. Um, so did South Africa, so did countries like, you know, Canada and Hong Kong and, and the Philippines and, and a few other sort of countries. But, you know, other countries like Mexico raised rates 13 times. Um, the UK, where I currently sit, raised rates nine times. You know, Australia was eight times. It really was a global concerted effort where interest rates was rising pretty much across the board in an attempt to to drive down you know, this inflationary beast, which had suddenly, you know, borne its teeth in a, in a way which is far more, I think, unexpected than anyone had thought. So, you know, going forward now, obviously, something you've alluded to, Ghost, and, and Mo did a couple of minutes ago as well, is, you know, where to from here? You know, you, you had a lot of effort being put into sort of curbing inflation or, or trying to break the back of it, as, you know, many central bankers, you know, like to, like to say or like to speak about. And now we're at the stage where, for all intents and purposes, it does seem as if, you know, we've probably seen the top of inflation. 
And, you know, and that can be, you know, seen through a, a host of different barometers and, and checkpoints, which I think, you know, we look at and, and I'm sure you guys do as well. So, you know, the, the next step, I guess, is saying, well, where do the markets go from here? Where do economies go from here? And this is something, you know, we've been chatting about for quite some time. And, you know, it sort of culminated in our end of year investment committee meeting in December, where we said we need to start, you know, having a very serious think about the implications of all of this and what this means obviously going forward because one of the massive issues which people have been talking about and it's commentary that's that's consistently or a theme that's consistently around any sort of cycle is that central banks tend to be backward looking you know not forward looking and you've had this very sharp as we said probably the fastest pace of US rate hikes in history and they're still pretty much thinking that they're likely to keep going at least another one or perhaps at least another two you know hikes from here you know, the, the rest of the guys out there are saying, well, you know, perhaps we need to actually just wait a little bit and see what the impact of all last year's rate hikes are going to be on the economy, both US and global, before we get too carried away with, you know, inflation still being high. What does this mean for well, economic growth and the potential for a recession? Yeah, Craig, I want to jump in here because, you know, to your point, you're absolutely spot on in that markets tend to be forward-looking, whereas policymakers tend to be backward-looking. And this this results in these very important timing differences. I mean, if you look at the narrative in the headline more recently, it's kind of been, you know, it's the recession is coming. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, when you look at how markets tend to behave, markets front load that recession. You know, you could argue that a lot of the pain we've seen come through in equity markets in risk assets have been tied to the fact that this recession was kind of in the kind of in the headlights for quite some time. Now, if you take that, if you assume that's the case, inflation's potentially peaked already, that policymakers may overstep that somewhat, you know, what are the implications? And I'll tell you why I throw that in there, is that when I look at this from a macro perspective, when you see, for example, the fact that we may be in the recession and, you know, that's that's where the economic cycle is, the market cycle, and I'm going to borrow something that our, our previous guest on the show, it's a guy by the name of Marco Papich. Uh, for those of you who haven't listened to the show, go and check out the last podcast we did. It was a great one on geopolitics. But Marco's Canadian, and so he used this phrase of saying, you know, you've got to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. Uh, and that's an ice hockey terminology. But I think that's what we need to do on markets. Because if you do that, then arguably right now, you should be positioning into consumer discretionary stocks. You should be positioning into, for example, materials or commodities as you're positioning for the uptick in the market cycle that's likely going to come because obviously the economic cycle's backward looking and lagging. What's your view on that? What's your view on some of the sector-specific themes as we stand right now at the start of 2023? Well, this is my view. And and obviously, you know, people will have different views out there, but you know, the the sort of Anbro House view at this point is is we don't think the market pain is necessarily over right now. And the reason why I say that is is as follows. You know, I think it's it's very clear that the market has made peace, I think, in, in my mind anyway, with the fact that inflation has probably peaked. So there were three things we were looking for, and it's something we alluded to in our previous note that we brought out, you know, sort of in the third quarter of last year, you know, that we were looking for, for you know, signs that a market may have bottomed. And the first thing is obviously inflation. And, you know, has inflation topped out? The second thing is interest rates. You know, have interest rates stopped rising? And the third thing we were very interested in is the strength of the US dollar. You know, and has the dollar 
sort of topped out as well and started weakening. Now, of the three that, you know, that we looked at that we keep a close eye on, two of the three have actually come to pass. So it does look as if the dollar has peaked and it does look as if inflation has peaked. Interest rates, however, don't look as if they've peaked just yet. And we know this because, you know, the Fed has already said they'll raise rates once more in, in February. And after, you know, the Fed minutes that came out a bit earlier in this week, and there's been a lot of sort of pouring over all the Fed speak and the dot plots and all those kind of things. And it seems as if they might be intimating to another increase after that, you know, perhaps in March. So, you know, if that's the case, we run a real risk here that, you know, the Fed does over tighten. And if that does happen, you know, then the odds of a recession sort of coming in the first quarter, perhaps second quarter of 2023, start rising incrementally. And, you know, if one looks at recessions over history, and, you know, you can go all the way back to, say, 1945, and recessions ever since, you know, then all the way up to sort of 2020 and the pandemic, you've generally seen earnings drop during a recession. Now, the problem we have at the moment is that consensus for U.S. earnings, they're still expecting earnings growth for 2023 of between 3 and 4% this year. You know, they also expect margins to rise this year by about 100 basis points in the States. Now, this was a recent sort of consensus figure that, that came out at the end of last year. Now, those two kind of things don't really gel with what we're seeing, I think, on the ground right now. With all the data that's coming through about, you know, the massive sort of slowdown we're seeing in the economy, um, consumer spending, which seems to be sort of creaking, consumer debt, which is, you know, starting to push back up again. It feels to me that the, the market might still be too optimistic on earnings for 2023. Now, the implications for that, I think, are, you know, we might get a quarter one or quarter two slip in the markets once again as the this whole sort of recessionary phase if you like you know is digested and accepted by the market and i think that's then probably the time you know where one needs to be very aggressive and move into your you know your best ideas and position for what will ultimately i think be a reduction in interest rates by the end of 2023 in the US. So this is quite a bold prediction. I understand that. You know, I think a lot of other people out there clearly, you know, would have a different view to what we have at Anbro. But but what we're thinking is the first six months is probably going to be quite volatile this year. You might see some market drops and, and bear market rallies and all that kind of thing. But at some point during this time, you know, you might get this this flush out trade if if the US goes into recession. One of the things we, we look at, obviously, is, is earnings on the S&P 500. If earnings are still going to grow by 3 or 4% this year, you know, you're, you're sitting then on an S&P 500 PE of probably, you know, 16 or so, um, which is fair value, not necessarily cheap. If the, you know, recessions do impact earnings and, you know, and the average sort of decline in earnings over all the recessions since 1945 has been as much as 25% declining earnings, if that does happen, you know, then there's a case to be made for, you know, one last sell-off in markets, you know, maybe another 10 or 15% pull down to somewhere like 3,300, more or less in the S&P 500. And if that's the case, I think that will be your final sort of flush out trade because, you know, the Fed's going to start getting seriously stressed about, I think, what they'll be seeing in the economy if that happens. And, you know, a big clue, I guess, is going to be the next 
sort of batch of quarter four earnings, which are going to start coming out in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, what guys are going to say or CEOs are going to say they've seen over the Christmas and um, festive season sales and all the rest of it. And, you know, if those outlook statements start looking poor, you're going to start seeing a big downgrade in earnings expectations. And I think that may be the catalyst for for one leg, you know, one last leg lower before, you know, we start positioning ourselves for, you know, potential rate cuts and then uh, the start of a new bull market. Craig, so I mean, I wanted to ask you a lot of the stocks in and specifically the unicorn portfolio, which is the growth sort of portfolio, because of course you guys have got the, you know, dynamic compounding portfolio, which I also want to touch on just before we sign off. It's something we talked about at the end of last year, and I'm keen to see where, you know, where your progress is with that. But are you seeing a bit of a maturity coming through perhaps from some of the executives around costs? I mean, obviously, you know, I know for a fact the companies that you like investing in generally have quite strong balance sheets. I know that's one of your criteria. So they would have had quite strong balance sheets to carry them through a tough year last year. Hopefully they raised money in the peak. I mean, that's how companies should use a market. You raise money when it's hot. You don't raise money when it's horrible. You know, that's when you, you know, you shore up your balance sheet and you just weather the storm. Are you seeing any kind of change in management team approaches towards specifically costs, margins, maybe free cash flow, not just chasing revenue growth at all costs? Yes, yeah, certainly, Ghost. I mean, there's, you know, the market pretty much came out last year and, and said to any growth business, you guys have to be a little bit more vigilant on the cost base. Now, the problem I think a lot of these growth companies had was, well, there were several issues. I think going into the, the pandemic, they, they weren't expecting the sort of demand that just sort of exploded, you know, for all kind of products and services in the IT or tech type space. That then resulted in a massive increase in spending on a whole host of issues. And one of the the issue or one of the, you know, the particular cost items, if you like, that rose rapidly were staff costs and employee costs. Coming out of the pandemic, you still had the, you know, the tailwinds of low interest rates, consumers, you know, flush with cash and massive demand. These companies, I think some of them anyway, you know, made the mistake that these sort of times would, would last for, for longer than they ultimately did. And so kept spending on particularly you know, high cost employees. And one thing you've certainly seen in the last quarter of last year was that that has changed. And I mean, a lot of it's happened in some of the big names, you know, that we, we all see on the news on a daily basis, like Amazon and Meta. Um, you know, Apple even cutting cutting jobs. But just in the last quarter of last year, you know, you had, you know, about 76,000 job cuts coming through, I think, in November alone. There was a forecast for about 60,000 job cuts for around about December. You know, in the November number with, with 76-odd thousand job cuts, 50-odd thousand of those were in tech. And if one looks at the sort of job cuts up to the end of November 2022 for the full year, there were about 320,000 jobs that had been cut across the, the U.S. economy with a large skew in the tech space. And it all kind of started, I think, with Twitter, you know, and when Elon Musk took Twitter over and he sort of went in there with the axe on day one and just really started culling staff left, right and center. And, you know, people started realizing, well, you know, he's letting staff go at a rapid rate. But, you know, for many people that used to it, so they haven't necessarily seen a massive change in their user experience. And I think, you know, a lot of companies out there, I think, started looking at that and saying, well, you know, are we getting the most out of our employees? And, you know, if not, we need to we need to make some changes and we need to right size. So I know it's a pretty long winded answer there, Ghost. But yes, I mean, we've seen a lot more 
discipline around the cost base you know for these companies i think they are still showing above average growth you know when we saw the, the the last batch of numbers come out they were still growing far ahead of the economy and far ahead of you know what we'd say you know value companies would be growing at but i think you know the growth rates had also started slowing and i think that did spook them a little bit as well so you know they they certainly are becoming far more cautious with regards to the you know their spending and i think you know the the market's also saying you know we want to start seeing a shorter path to profits you know so when interest rates were very low and not you know you could have more leg you know leg room or wiggle room if you like now that interest rates are rising we want to see you know profits coming a lot quicker and companies are starting to respond to that certainly yeah, Craig, I think, you know, on, on the jobs picture, it's, it's been so interesting because as you indicate, you know, in the tech sector, you've had these massive layoffs. Uh, if you look at it on an aggregated level, if you looked at, for example, non-farm payrolls in the U.S., those have been kind of rising still, but the mix of that has changed fundamentally. I mean, on the most recent number, you saw the uptick come through in other sectors like leisure, for example. So maybe, you know, a change in consumer spending patterns. You know, people have come out of the pandemic and they've been spending more on now lifestyle oriented stuff rather than kind of tech or conventional retail. So a lot of interesting kind of let's call it sector or subsector themes emerging. Where I want to go with this comment is actually throw a question forward to you. So if we rewind to last year around this time, you know, there was a lot of hype around specific sectors. And some of those came through in terms of, you know, medical or med tech type of companies, lots of hype around that, genomics. And we saw companies with these really extended valuations, a lot of stuff going into, for example, some of the, the ARC innovation funds, as an example, not just picking on ARC, but as an example, simply because that was the high growth space. Those sectors then subsequently unwound very sharply. If we look at where we are today, I see a lot of hype in terms of, of media headlines around AI, for example, and a lot of big names involved in that AI space. So the likes of a Microsoft, for example, even cloud-oriented businesses. What is your view on some of the themes that are currently in the market, in the market narrative, and which of those do you think are going to be sustainable versus the ones that you think are maybe too hyped and maybe vulnerable to a bit of a pullback? Sure. Well, I think, you know, if one looks at, you say the growth space as a whole and you know and one looks at say the tech sector specifically in your comment around ai i think you know there are very few companies which are you know listed in the states which are purely ai orientated and you know as you rightly said mo you know microsoft has a stake in this you know this new ai phenomenon which everyone is talking about and chat gbt and i think you know that is you know, a, a meaningful stake in terms of, you know, quantum and value, but in terms of the size of the business as a whole, it's not necessarily enough to, you know, I think to cause any real concern. I think the big cap tech stocks are probably going to be more concerned this year about their, um, their cloud-based businesses, you know, and you're starting to see growth rates slow down in the likes of, you know, Microsoft Azure, Amazon Web Services, you know, and um, and the like, and I think, and that's the I think the the big issue that a lot of um, analysts are worried about. You know, with those stocks in particular, I think when one looks at things like cybersecurity, for example, I mean that's not a trend that's going to be going away. You know, we we're not too stressed about that. If you look at even things like um, 
you know, microchips, you know, the, the demand for them is still phenomenally strong. And there's a new sort of massive trend in, in chip technology, which is going to be sort of rolled out over the next sort of five, 10 years. And we think, you know, a company like NVIDIA and AMD, you know, play very nicely in that space. And, and so does someone like Taiwan Semi and um, ASML, you know, so I think one does have to be very specific in terms of where it is you're looking for your exposure now, but there certainly is still going to be, you know, above average growth rates to be had out there. When it comes to the med tech space in particular, I think, you know, one looks at biotech stocks as a whole, and I mean, you know, without going into any sort of specific names, but if you look at the sector as a whole, I think 90 odd percent of those companies, and I mean, I stand to be corrected, but are trading below um, cash balances on their balance sheet right now. You know, so you've had a massive drawdown in in share prices there. And obviously, a lot of these companies sit with a lot of cash and a lot of that cash is just poured into R&D. And, you know, there's there's upside that comes if they come across a vaccine or a new technology, if you like, that, you know, that helps change the, the face of the, the market that they're in. But the I think the mood has been so dour on a lot of them that they're actually trading below cash multiples. You know, so one's got to be, I think, selective there, but there certainly is a lot of um, upside potential there. I think ironically, you know, some of the biggest risk to earnings might be in places that, you know, we don't necessarily think, you know, and, and that could be something like the energy space. Last year, you saw a massive ramp up in energy prices and, you know, the big cap energy stocks obviously saw earnings rocket and profits soar on the back of that. But looking at it now, you know, natural gas prices are all the way down again. Oil prices are all the way down again. And, you know, they probably in terms of like cyclical earnings, if you like, one of the sectors most at risk to earnings um, sort of slowing down or perhaps going negative. You know, in the commodity space, I think that's something obviously we're watching quite closely. You know, a weaker dollar and Chinese reopening is causing a lot of excitement, you know, in commodities for now. But I think, you know, one's got to just watch that, you know, that place very closely. And, you know, listening to a lot of the analysts we chat to, they say, you know, that could be a sector that one's also got to be just a little bit, um, you know, aware of. You know, if you look at the, the performance of global markets last year, you know, the two markets that significantly outperformed in a global context were South Africa in dollar terms and um, the UK in dollar terms. And I think the, ma- the majority of those gains or, or that relative outperformance came from their massive commodity exposures. You know, so, you know, something that did really well last year, I guess, is not something that's necessarily going to do as well this year. Craig, maybe for a minute before we, you know, call it for this first podcast of the year with you, and it's always so great to have you on the show. I really enjoy it. So, just a little update, maybe if you can, on where the sort of dynamic compounding portfolio is, um, you know, and maybe for the people who aren't that familiar with Ambro, just a minute or two on the sort of different stuff you guys are busy with and how they can find you. Sure. So the dynamic compounding portfolio, you know, listed on the JAC in December last year. So it was pretty much the middle of December. Now, you know, for people that know us um, by the unicorn portfolio, that's obviously a high growth blue sky portfolio, you know, where we're looking for, you know, mega trends and and fast growing businesses that are backed by founder led, you know, management teams with massive stakes and and equity in the game. Um, the, The dynamic compound portfolios 
almost the opposite of that. You know, it's it's a more value orientated approach, looking for high dividend yielding stocks. You know, we then look for these these massive cash flows and dividends that these companies pay out, and then reinvest them back into the portfolio. You know, to try and get a compounding of those dividends over time, which is almost like you know compound interest on steroids, if you like, because we're not only getting the dividends, but the dividends are growing, and we're reinvesting those growing dividends. So that portfolio, I mean, has you know started the year; it's up almost three percent or so this year. So it's a you know pretty sort of quiet little start chugging along it's a very diversified portfolio you know where the unicorn is more focused on you know tech and med tech and it has um you know exposure to cloud and cybersecurity and all those kind of exciting things this is a bit more staid in its exposure you know we have real estate we have utilities we have some energy stocks um some tech and healthcare stocks um the big issue there though is we want Obviously, very, very strong balance sheets, very strong cash flows. Free cash flow needs to be very, very big in order to cover the dividends that, you know, that we expect and also the, the business expenses that are required. And the yield we look at for this portfolio in US dollars as a starting yield is 4% per annum. So it sits, you know, higher than the S&P 500, more or less in line with, you know, US 10-year yields. And um, and then we're looking for businesses that have historically grown, you know, their dividends by a factor which is faster than inflation. So, I mean, yeah, that's, you know, that portfolio is still sort of pretty much being built out and it's very new, but so far so good. And for people that are interested in having a look at it, you know, you're more than welcome to go to the Anbro website, which is anbro.co. And, you know, we have links there to to both portfolio websites for, you know, for people that are looking for a bit more information on it. Otherwise, yeah, happy to, you know, reach out and chat to anyone that's, you know, looking for, for more info on them. Uh, thanks, Craig. I mean, th- that's fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. But I'm, I'm very glad to say that this is just the first of many conversations that we're going to be having with you and the team at Anbro as the year progresses. Uh, I think because we're wrapping it for today, all I'm going to say is good luck, Craig. We've always enjoyed the fantastic conversations we've had with you. The, you know, the, the, the fact that you guys are willing to share your ideas, your thoughts with us, with our listeners. Uh, and let's see how the year progresses. But all the best on building out both the dynamic compound portfolio as well as with the unicorn portfolio. And again, to the listeners, you can find them at anbro.co or you can find myself and Finance Ghost as well as Magic Markets at at Magic Markets Pod, that's one word, or at Muhammad Nala, or at Finance Coast. Uh, but guys, until next week, same time, same place. Thanks, Craig, and thanks for being on Magic Markets. Well, thanks again, guys, for having me. Always happy to be here, and you know, good luck for the year to everybody out there. I hope it's happy and healthy. And you know, yeah, looking forward to you know seeing how this year progresses, and to you know chat more about these sort of crazy forecasts that I made a bit earlier, and just see how they un- unfold as the year progresses. Thank you, Craig. It's great to have you guys back, and certainly it's going to be a better year for you. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be. <laughs> so we look forward to that. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Anbro Capital Investments. Invest in the future. Invest in growth. Visit investingunicorns.com to learn more. The Unicorn Portfolio is managed by Anbro Capital Investments, an authorized financial services provider. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor 